0: Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to Muscle Maven Radio. I'm your host, the Muscle Maven. You don't need to know my real name. If you do, that's great, but Muscle Maven works. Call me whatever you want, really. Um, I hope you're great. I hope you're excited for today's episode. It's been a long time coming and this was one that was requested um, by my friends and followers and listeners of the podcast. So I hope that you um, enjoy this one and get a lot out of it. Um, my guest today is none other than Paul Saladino, known as Carnivore MD on Instagram. He is a board certified physician nutrition specialist. He's written a bestseller called The Carnivore Code. Um, He's got a bunch of other things on the go, too. He's got his own podcast. He's a pretty big deal. Um, And he is a very vocal voice in the carnivore world. And as such, you know, I thought it would be good to get him on and chat about eating meat, chat about some of the um, misconceptions around a protein-forward animal-based diet, And some of the things that he's experimenting with and and working on and seeing uh in the world today so i thought it would be cool i crowdsourced and got a bunch of questions from you guys on social media to ask him and we got through a lot of it but it looks like i may need to get him on a couple more times because um there's a lot to chat about so um yeah there's a lot going on we talk about anything um from whether carnivore is a good reset for people with gut issues um you know, what his favorite and least favorite uh, proteins are and and cuts and all of that kind of stuff, additions of things like honey and dairy for strict carnivore people, um, what his least favorite non-animal foods are and why, um, all kinds of stuff. We really get into it. And he, um, unfortunately, for the ladies watching and listening, because you know these episodes are all on youtube as well on my youtube channel you can look it up muscle maven radio he is known for not wearing a shirt very much um which is a great marketing uh tactic for carnivore for the carnivore diet he was wearing a shirt during this interview um because he was trying to be professional so i'm sorry in advance um but uh it was a great it was a great chat and i think you know as somebody like myself who's very interested in just communicating about the benefits the health um The health benefits of a nose-to-tail diet. Um, That's something I really want to get into with him. It's not just about how much steak can you eat. Um, There's a lot more nuance to healthy eating, to carnivore eating, to paleo eating, to all of those things. Um, So... Yeah, I think it was a great conversation. Um, I appreciate Paul for taking the time and um, hopefully I can get him back on again to talk about some specific stuff. So if you guys have any any more questions, any follow-ups, anything you want us to, to go over in a future episode, just let me know. You can reach out to me um, as always on Instagram at The Muscle Maven. You can send me an email. My email address is in the show notes. Um, yeah, that's it. Let's... Uh, let's talk as always. I want to hear your comments and your feedback. And I hope you uh, get something out of this interview with Paul. And uh, that's it. Enjoy the show. All right, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. It's good to see you.
1: I put on a shirt for your podcast. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I did. (laughs)
0: It's bad. You'll take it <laughs> off later. As we get a little warmed up here, you can take it off. You can take um, it off. It's funny because that was that was literally going to be my first question. I assumed that you would have a shirt on and I was like, you know, you're going to make everyone very upset because this is what people expect from you now. You're like the shirtless carnivore doctor. So you kind of need to like keep up appearances.
1: But, I'm okay with that. I did an yeah. Instagram live the other day and somebody said, I think at least two people said, we can't hear you with your shirt on. I'm pretty sure it was women. Um, guys probably just like roll their eyes, but whatever. Like I'm in Texas. Welcome to our uh, world.
0: Right? Welcome to our world. We, we, you are now experiencing what every single woman on the internet experiences, which is, uh, you know, take your shirt off and you get people, more people paying attention to you.
1: I mean. Objectification. Well, I, I feel like men can appreciate it too. Like it's good to be a fit individual and I'm not afraid to mm-hmm. show that. And I also happen to not wear shoes very much. Um or a shirt because I'm in Texas and I just, I mean, I just want to be outside and I kind of want to be Mowgli any all the time anyway. So I just getting closer to that.
0: I appreciate that. I'm definitely like a anti socks person too, despite growing up in Canada. Like I have some sort of more, uh, I guess, island roots. My mom's from Bermuda and I lived there for a while. And just not having to wear socks really improves your quality of life for some reason. I can't really place why, but there's just something, it's the primal thing, right? It's like your feet feel the ground. You don't have to like have them encumbered by so much material all the time. Like less clothes, the better. I, I'm with you on that for sure. Yeah.
1: I mean, and not no socks, no shoes. Yeah. I don't even, I probably own three pair of socks completely. Yeah. Even if I'm wearing shoes, I'm never wearing socks.
0: Do you like the crazy heat in Texas, like in the summer, or do you want to kind of get out and go somewhere a bit more reasonable?
1: No, I'm kinda digging it. I just moved here from California. California was getting a little too crazy and I love it so far. I like I like to sweat. I grew up in Virginia where it was super humid and I didn't love it there because there were gnats and like horrible, horrible bugs, but I don't mind the heat here at all. And there's all kinds of lakes and stuff. And Mm -hmm. man, you know, I was in California and I had the salt water, but I love fresh water. I love being in lakes and rivers and swimming and going on rope swings and wake surfing. It just feels very, feels very primal, you know, just yeah. being outside in that water feels really good.
0: So you're in Austin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Where all of the events that we wanted to go to this season were supposed to happen and now are not.
1: It's such a tragedy. I really feel like this is like all of these movements, whether it's paleo or carnivore or animal based, they're kind of about community and seeing people that you care about and just celebrating. I mean, what is this all about? If it's if, What's more ancestral than a tribe, than, than having your tribe? Yeah. And you can't see people that are similarly excited about life as you are because they're nourishing themselves or at least thinking outside the box or hearing what works or doesn't work for them. Like that's really hard. And, yeah. and as you know, we're sort of in this heterogeneous, we're in these heterogeneous populations throughout the country now where, you know, you live in Canada or New York, Gabrielle's in New York. Like I've got friends in California. I was just talking to Chris Kresser this morning. He's in Utah. I've got a lot of friends in Austin, which is why I moved here, but there's people like all over the world who think similarly to us. And, you know, I got to imagine that like 3 million years ago, we would have all found each other and been like, hey, we're all gonna live here, yeah. <laughs> you know? And everybody that wants to eat like plant-based can go live over there. And, you know, every once in a while, we'll go over there and and have like a competition in strength and kick their butt and show them how silly they are like the Maasai and the Kikuyu from SMA Price. But, you know, we're going to live in this tribe and we're all going to eat similar things and support each other. And I'm going to hunt and and give you some, and you're going to share something else. And so like, that's the way it would have been. But now it's like we just live in these completely heterogeneous communities where people think all these wildly different things. And that, It's good. It's good to share different opinions, but it also is important to be around people who kind of can encourage you because we're all going to go through struggles. I know that when I visit my friends here in Austin or my friends in Houston who are very sort of ancestral minded, that it just feels good to be like, let's get a really hard workout. Or they'll be like, hey dude, I want you to pick up these kettlebells and carry them for a mile. And you're like, That's gonna stink, but I'm gonna do it because these people are like, you know, it's just, it's a fun thing to kind of do that. So I think that that's a hard thing for us right now is we don't have these communities as much as we should. Hopefully, everywhere we live, we have communities, but the tribe is hugely important.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I also think you touched on something very potentially cool there, especially with us maybe not knowing the future of CrossFit these days. Maybe you could help establish some kind of competition that is actually (laughs) carnivore versus vegetarian or any kind of, uh, you know, whatever food nutrition methodology, get your team together. Let's have a display of strength and let's see what happens. I think it's a great idea.
1: I think it's a great idea. I've joked about it on Instagram. I posted on Instagram recently, a picture of me next to Dr. Greger, And I was like, Hey, look, carnivore MD, vegan MD, you guys decide, um, before I'd posted a a photo of like me and Sean Baker and Jamie Seaman and Ted Naaman and like a bunch of other plant know why I, wasn't, I don't know why I
0: wasn't on there. I, okay, I'm not a doctor. All right, move on.
1: <laughs> just, okay. I mean, you could be on the next one. <laughs> okay. We'll put you on the next one. Okay. <laughs> or like Gabrielle and you and me and some other people on the next one. But like, yeah, I think, wouldn't this be fun like in the spirit, uh, like from in the most inclusive way to be mm-hmm. like, look, we're all humans. We're just trying to like have fun and be like, look, this is the way we, eat. this is the way you guys eat. Let's go see what we can do here, you know? Yeah. because there's a lot of people on Twitter that want to debate me and and I'll probably do a lot of it in the future. But I'm also like, show me your visceral adipose tissue. You know, like a lot of vegans on Twitter want to debate me. And I'm like, show me your abs. Like, show me how much muscle you have. Because, you know, like, show me and actually show me something like visceral adipose tissue, an actual physiologic indicator of insulin sensitivity or You know, like, because we can go round and round and I'm not sure these debates really help anyone. Nobody really wants to know about the esoteric science and why one study that I think is valuable is not valuable to this vegan or this, uh, you know, and so it's just, it really gets into the weeds, but it's hard. And that's, what's probably amazing about sport and kind of what sport probably grew out of is like, Hey, look, like, forget all that science. How fast can you run a mile? How fast can I run a mile? How much weight can you lift? You know how far can you swim? How many trees can you climb? How many animals can you hunt? Or I guess they're going to want to hunt kale or something. But, you know, and, like, and, and show me with an MRI, which is not very ancestral, but show me how much visceral adipose tissue there is, or show me some indication of your, your insulin sensitivity, or show me some indication of your, your overall inflammation or your overall nutrient adequacy that we can just say like, look, all these research studies have been done. Let's, let's just compare my test tube to your test tube, you know, and see and see what comes out of it. And I think that would be really revealing to people. So I'm all about like the carnivore, vegan, omnivore games. I think that'd be super fun.
0: I'm very into it. I think this is maybe something we can talk about offline because I'm super pumped about that idea. Right? This this leads into something though that I wanted to discuss with you that's like, you know, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but it's also kind of serious and it's sort of two parts. So one is, you know, we're talking about the weird time that we're in right now. And I wanted to ask you with things like, KetoCon and Paleo effects being canceled. Like, how is your work and the way you interact with people changing during this time? And secondary to that is kind of touching on what you just said about all the online debates and are they helpful and are they getting anywhere? And this is a question I ask a lot of influential people in our industry because I maybe I'm a little bit jaded. I just feel like Sometimes I wake up and I'm like, literally, what's the point? Because we're either preaching to our own choir, so we're already telling people who are on board with us what to do, or, or what you know, what to what avenues to explore, or we're just you know, it's just so divisive. Everything's so divisive online, which I don't think is really a good representation of how human beings actually are. But that seems to be the biggest, easiest platform that we're all on right now. And it's like, are we wasting our time? Are you wasting your energy and your breath having conversations? that you know maybe aren't opening people's minds because that's not the platform that opens people's minds anymore? Like how do you feel about how you're interacting in this space right now?
1: You bring up some great points here. It's super challenging. And um, with regard to, I mean, like we said in the beginning, you know, KetoCon, Paleo FX, these conferences, these are a lot of people in our tribe. So we're not necessarily changing minds, but somebody might hear my talk and think, wow, I I never considered that spinach may not be the greatest thing for me. So you might, you know, somebody might add something to their paleo diet or might try a little bit more of a carnivore diet or add a few more organs to their diet if they see me at one of those conferences. But I do think that humans need real human interaction, which is why Zoom is obviously better than text or better than um, Twitter. And I've heard, you know, Rogan talk about this recently too. Social media, I think, I mean, this is probably slightly hyperbolic, but I just fear that it's absolutely eroding human interactions. You know, I'm going to argue, if I argue with a vegan physician on Twitter, we're just shooting, we're like literally hurling words at each other and, and apostrophes and commas and spaces. Misspellings.
0: Yeah. Misspellings.
1: (laughs) And it's, it's horrible. We are, I am like, and I just, I see there is no humanity. It's very hard for me to see that person's humanity and for them to see my humanity. The interactions that I've had with people on Zoom for my podcast or in person that have been even of opposing views are almost all the time much more civil than you would expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like I said, I just recorded a podcast this morning with Chris Kresser. He's a great guy. We don't agree on everything, but we are totally civil to each other because Chris is a civil guy. And when you're actually getting human cues with someone, it's a lot harder to be a jerk to them. Yes. Even if it's a vegan that I disagree with, like most of what they're saying it's much harder for me to be a jerk or for them to be a jerk back to me when they see me as a human being. So doing what we're doing like this is a really like very inaccurate, very non-ideal way to do it. The best thing to do would be, and I actually said this to Rich Roll. So I did a podcast a while ago on The Minimalists with Rich Roll and my friend Tommy Wood. And it didn't happen, but I asked my friends who are the hosts of The Minimalists, Joshua and Ryan Nicodemus, like, why don't we all go do something as humans before we have this kind of podcast? And they were like, "Oh yeah, cool. Let's go to this Russian bathhouse." And I was like, "All right, cool. I'm gonna get super sweaty and you know, hang out with a bunch of dudes. That sounds great. Like, but at least I would see Rich Roll as a human being, you know? And we could talk about something that wasn't vegan, you know? And and I think that that would lead to a lot more understanding of who we are, rather than just this butting of heads. And that goes to your second point, which is. I'm not sure. I, I think that there is value in sharing different opinions, but I think that the way it happens 95% of the time is not the best way to do it. You know, if you look at what happens, unfortunately on Rogan with his debates, they're just, they're just hurling insults. I mean, Kresser and Wilkes was like worthless, not because of Chris's fault, probably not because of James's fault. Although I think James was using a lot of dirty tactics and not really allowing Chris to talk, but it just didn't really give people a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, Methodology or a lot of valuable information to move forward on the, the fact of the matter is that people are going to make these decisions based on emotion yeah. um, rather than science because if if they 're not scientists in the beginning, how are they going to be able to sift through the twenty five studies that I am going to levy versus the twenty five studies that if a vegan physician or someone that disagrees with a carnivore study is going to levy back at me it 's just like it 's just all based on emotion they 're just going to look at that and be like we think that guy won. And it's like, wait a minute. Like, it's just, it's not necessarily the best thing. If you're not a scientist in the first place, I think that the main value, and I do think there is value in the work that we do, even if it's not in person, because it's like, the way I see it is like, look, what we do is we put something out there. It's like, it's almost like a democratic process. You just put your hat in the ring, you share your ideas. And I think that It's not so much about me debating a vegan physician, whoever it might be, or me debating someone that disagrees with my ideas. It's like both of us share our ideas in a democratic fashion. We just lay them on the table and whoever wants can pick them up and use them and see what results they get. And in the end, the people that benefit the most will be like the most vocal and say, hey, I tried Paul's ideas. They didn't work for me, but I tried this guy's ideas. I like them. They're going to go over and say, you know, this guy's ideas work or vice versa. Like, hey, you know what? I tried a vegan diet. I tried a paleo diet or I tried, you know, I tried eating this diet or that diet, it didn't work. And then I tried a carnivore diet, it really worked. So, and then, so you just sort of like, it's more of like a democratic thing. It's like, Hey, what I'm about is really just saying, here's the information, which is why I think freedom of speech is so important. Like, it's not that we have to debate and argue. I don't think that solves anything, but all the ideas need a space to be heard. And so people can say, like, I can say here, here's all your cards. Like you can be a, you can be this diet, you can be this diet, you can be this diet, you can this diet. And here's why I think this isn't going to kill you. Um, and, and so you should try it. And so the, the, really the takeaway for me is just getting the information out there and combating the untruths that prevent people from even trying your ideas in the first place. That to me is the most insidious, damaging, dangerous part of it where people say, I can't eat red meat. That's killing me. Like that is complete BS and you and I know it. And that's what I'm about is saying to people, look, this is a completely healthy food. Do not fear saturated fat. Do not fear red meat. Do not fear trying this, but I'm not going to tell you my diet is the best thing for you. I want you to experience it yourself. Yes. So it's democratic. It's like, you know, you want to try a vegan diet, go try a vegan diet. You know, you want to try a carnivore diet, do that. You know, if you're going to do a vegan diet, make sure you get your nutrients, right? If you're going to do a carnivore diet, make sure you eat nose to tail. If you're going to do this diet, do that. But ultimately, it's like what you and I and all the people in our space are about is ultimately not not fighting to see who's the most right, just trying to give people the highest quality of life. And so I love the idea of just putting it all out there, sharing the information, people take it, they benefit, they talk about it, that's mm-hmm. that's what it, and then they sort of spread it organically to their friends and they say, this is valuable, this is not. That's, that's I think, how the truth will be spread. And then... You know, at the same time, we have to be defensive and say that when pieces get published in the New York Times that are misleading or when people are misled, that's what we sort of fight against. Not, I don't think it's useful to fight against other individuals who are sharing their ideas because they have a right to share that idea and people can decide. But we do need to fight against the untruths that are out there, the untruths regarding environmental impact, the untruths regarding the health, you know, dangers of these different types of things. So I think that's where I, that's where I see it.
0: Yeah, I mean that makes me feel that calms me down a little bit. This response that you had because I, I, you know, I go up and down between like just pure despair and like you know not caring at all, like giving up entirely. And I think one of the sort of echoings part of what you said, one of the things that's really helped in my evolution was stop trying to convince people of anything. Like you said, you just you put out the best information, the information that you believe to be helpful and useful and accurate, and people will come to you when they're ready, and they'll ask questions when they're ready. And that's something that i've been doing specifically with regards to like the kind of organ meat nose to tail conversation And we'll get into that a little bit more because you're one of the few people that is into this stuff like I am So we can talk about it But you know, I didn't come out and say like everyone has to eat Liver and hearts and brains and this is how you have to do it and like get on it I just started experimenting myself with eating some of this stuff and trying it and cooking it and, um, digging into the health benefits and things like that. And people started kind of like asking me, they're like, what's your deal? Like, are you eating hard all the time? Like, what is this? What does it taste like? How do you cook it? And it just, I'm just, people are coming to me instead of me like, pushing this on my like, you know, recovering vegetarian mother or whatever. I'm just kind of, yeah, you just sort of have to put the information out the best way that you can and hope that you're kind of meeting people where they are. Um, I think so that's, I mean, I don't know. I still, I still get very disillusioned with things like the Joe Rogan podcast, because I just, first of all, don't look at the comments, right? Cause that's your first mistake. Mm-hmm. But when I did, it was just like, it's just that everybody just doubles down on their team. Like no one's willing to hear it. And so this is another, I feel like we maybe are beating this conversation to death. And like, if you feel that this is not helpful, we'll, we'll move on cause I've got lots of questions, but like you mentioned, you know, maybe there's a New York times article that has like factually incorrect information, in it, right? How do you even begin to debunk anything at this point, again, on the internet, when there's, like you said, there's 25 studies that validate this guy's point, And there's 25 studies that validate this guy's point, And the vast majority of us are not scientists, are not researchers, are not doctors. We're just like, we're just sitting there with our mouths open. Like what, how do we, how do we understand what's true and what isn't anymore? How do we do it?
1: It's very challenging. And, and things like that are, I think, what are so dangerous when, and this is not a partisan issue, but we can all see this now with the upcoming election that fake news is a real thing, and, and and people can put a spin on things, and it depends on your perspective. You know, if the New York Times wants to be anti-beef, then they can publish a, uh, an article by Jonathan Safran Foer and say the end of meat is here, and and in that in that article, which is an op, you know, I think it's an op-ed or it's an opinion piece, he can say you know, meat contributes to the majority of human chronic disease. And, and people reading that are like, yep, yep, I've heard that on the news. And you're like, what? Like, that's completely crazy. So in that case, I think we just have to create the, the narrative that's contrary to that so that people can experience at least a little bit of cognitive dissonance by knowing someone in their life who has improved their health or lost 100 pounds by eating mostly animal foods. Or, you know, and, and they can say, wait a minute, what about Uncle Joe? Like he went keto he lost like 90 pounds and reversed his diabetes. How can meat be so bad for you? So that they have some sort of a reference point to kind of, to really fact check this in their own brain. But yeah, it's very challenging. And ultimately, I think it's just gonna come from like a grassroots movement. As more and more people hear about this, they will have their experience. And it's my hope that their experience will be resoundingly positive. And in that case, they just can't stop talking about it. But you're right, in the comments, everyone just doubles down. Everyone's got a team. They're going to be like, yay, Wilkes, because we're ideologues. Like yeah. if we're in a tribe, you're going to support the person that you think is in your tribe. That's human nature. And that's fine. But um, I mean, we see pretty extreme examples of that, you know, with yeah. cults or, you know, people who are just, I mean, I have a lot of friends who are vegans previously, Elise Parker, Tim Sheaf, and, you know, their experiences that I've talked about on my podcast are striking. Like the, the narrative in many of these things, and I hope this is not the case in our community, though we have to be aware that it may be, is is if you're not thriving, you're not doing it right. Yeah. And, and that you're, you know, if you're not thriving on a vegan diet or your libido goes away or you're, as a woman, if your cycle is not regular, you're doing yeah. something wrong and you're detoxing and it's like that. Just the the propaganda is deep and it's it's just crazy what these people have experienced. And then in both Elise's case and Tim's case, I mean, the number of people that have made this transition from plant-based diets to animal-based diets and seen resounding improvements in their health is pretty astounding at this point. John Venus is a is a widely known vegan influencer. Like the, the numbers are pretty significant. Like it's kind of undeniable at this point. But you know, within those circles, there's a lot of negativity. I mean, I'm talking to John Venus, who's a well-known vegan guy who's now eating animal foods on Instagram and he's telling me that other vegan physicians are just deriding him. They're just throwing, you know, insults at him now because he he switched teams. And so this, you know, as much as I'm in the beginning of the podcast kind of talking about how humans need a tribe, the, the dark side of that is is too much dogmatic, you know, yes. adherence and, and the tribalism part where we're just saying this is my tribe. And that's not the good part. But yes. I agree. It's it's just, I think all opinions deserve a voice and let people gather the information and take what they will and use it to improve their life and then decide what works for them. And then hopefully talk about it so that we can share it with other people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I know again, this isn't about being on like the winning or losing team, but the one thing that gives me hope that we're on the right side is the fact that it's like, it's sort of like a good analogy is like the abstinence only, like sexual health, uh, lesson. Like everyone likes that idea of like, let's just teach abstinence only. And we know that it like flies in the face of human nature and that it's never going to work. And if you look at, you know, across history and every culture and all over the world, More people eat meat because it's essentially what our body is telling us we need. Even if our brains are saying eating meat's bad and it's it's immoral and it's unhealthy and it's bad for the environment, your body will turn on you eventually and tell you to do what it needs to do. So the same goes for the abstinence thing. Like that might work for a day or two, but that's not going (laughs) to solve the problem. And neither is not eating meat ever again for most people. So
1: Yeah. And there's a study that I talk about in my book. You know, the second edition is coming out August the 4th. Um, there's the old edition right there, the carnivore code where they've actually done, you know, these, these brain scans on people and you can look at sort of different levels of the brain and you can look at what are called evoked neural potentials. And you can look at like the limbic functional, like kind of basic brain of a human around these appetite and satiety mechanisms and pleasure mechanisms. And if you show, and then you can look at the higher quote cognition, these sort of frameworks that we tell each other, the narrative, we tell ourselves the narratives that we've constructed as sort of neocortical humans, these, you know, these thinking brains. And you can show a vegetarian a picture of meat and they will tell themselves at a neocortical level that that's bad, but their deeper ancestral brain says that is good. And you can see this in the brain. They have the exact same response. Somebody that's an omnivore sees a meat and is like, that looks good. And their deeper brain says, that is good, you want that. And someone that's a vegetarian or a vegan looks at it and goes, that's that's meat is murder. But their deeper brain still says, put that in your body because you need the nutrients. And so that's a pretty interesting study that like, you know, evolutionarily, we still respond positively to meat. And like you said, indigenous cultures know this. They know this intrinsically. Yes, you can get by eating plants for some amount of time. Um but it's just not a great long-term strategy. And that's what I talk about in my book and the Carnivore Code, that plants are really survival food. You don't have to eliminate them completely from your diet, but I think that as you and I believe, the more animal foods from the better sourcing, from the best sourcing you can put in, the better health you're going to have just from a micronutrient level. That's just the way it works.
0: Yeah. Tell me what's uh, different about the second edition. Like, have you added things or amended things or-
1: so the second edition is exciting in a couple of ways. It's a, it's a it's a big five publisher, so it's out in Mifflin. So the main thing that's exciting about the second edition is getting to put this idea on a much bigger table for people. It's going to be everywhere. It's going to be Hudson at airports. It's going to be Target, Walmart, Barnes & Noble. The first edition was self-published, so it's just Amazon, right? And so the second edition will have ebook, audio, which I recorded myself, and this much broader distribution just to reach more people to say to challenge this sort of mainstream idea which we believe is wrong that red meat is bad for you or that all plants are uniquely good for humans so that's what the main thing is the bigger distribution we put a new cover on it i don't have the new cover that's the old cover um and it has an index we cleaned up a few things in the text but mostly it's it's a similar book getting to broader distribution of people and we add an index so you can find all the scientific terms we put on a new sexy cover with a piece of steak on it for that. So the so idea it's not is just your, whole, your
0: face and the steak and like shirtless <laughs> you and steak anymore? No. Uh,
1: me and a steak? Yeah. No, it's a steak. <laughs> okay. But the hope okay. is just that people will see it and it it'll, it'll that it'll, you know, that it'll be a bestseller. The first book sold really well and was an Amazon bestseller. I really want this to be New York Times Wall Street Journal bestseller. So the people will walk into an airport and be like, "What the heck is this?" You know? Just this crashing cognitive dissonance to say this guy says meat is good for me, or I can eat a diet of only meat. This is crazy. I need to read this because I'm sure he's wrong. And then hopefully it'll open minds and they'll say, wow, this is you know the information that people haven't seen before.
0: And an airport is one of the places that you need nutrition information the most because they're nightmares as far as food
1: goes. They're absolutely food nightmares. I mean, the uh, yeah, they're absolute nightmares. The thing about scary about airports is they're just a microcosm of every mall in America too. So if you think about it, you know, an, an airport is just the same as every mall everywhere. It's the same yeah. things that people want and are paying for, and whether it's you know a pretzel a pretzel place or a donut place or you know a, a croissant place using vegetable oils or whatever, it's it's just the the same sort of small you know paradigm being being replayed there over and over. And you're right. It's all, it's all a nightmare because, you know, as humans, we have sort of opened this Pandora's box, you know, for millions of years, there was no such thing as processed food. And I'm sure your audience has heard this over and over. We won't have to, you know, beat this one to death, but you know, you can't, it's very difficult for humans to go two and a half million years as hominids with no processed food. And then suddenly to start processing food and adding very, um, very sort of palatable foods yep. you know vegetable oils and sugars and highly processed grains and expect us to not have this reaction yep. and it's it's almost like i don't know how we're going to get out of this mess to tell you the truth i think it's going to be um uh you know again something that starts at a grassroots level and enough people are going to have to get sick and improvements and experience improvements in their health to say whoa and tell their family it's going to happen at a micro level you know yep. Jane or Jimmy is gonna tell his family, who's gonna tell somebody else. And those stories are really what's gonna change it. But at a broader level, humans are programmed to eat these foods oh. and, and it's gonna be very, very difficult to convince them otherwise. Yeah. So we'll see where it goes.
0: And we have such structures in place that even for people who want to make positive changes, it's incredibly difficult. And, you know, we know that human nature shows us we do have to hit a a level of sort of rock bottom to make changes to our lifestyle. And we still don't quite know where that rock bottom is for most people yet. I think that's kind of the scary thing. But
1: um, I think that's one of the reasons. Have you ever played with a CGM
0: I, you know, I haven't, and I, I don't know, I guess it's just like I haven't felt like I needed to yet, but I i, I don't know, maybe I should just for the you sake You
1: probably of. don't need to, but your audience might benefit from it. So yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, we we are sort of like automobiles with a hood, right? How many people, uh, how many of those, how many of us go to buy a car and pop the hood anymore, right? Yeah. Like I bought a truck recently and i I honestly didn't even pop the hood. I was like, it's a Toyota Tacoma. I'm sure it all works, right? And, and how many of us, if we did pop the hood, would know like there's the carburetor, we right? Yeah. And so the analogy I'm drawing here is just like, how many of us as humans really pop the hood on our own biology on a daily basis or are tuned in enough to our own biology? I mean, almost no one is getting their HSCRP every day or looking at fasting insulin every day or following glucose curves. What's so cool, I think, about a continuous glucose monitor and I've worn it for a month. I did a whole podcast about this. What's so cool about this is that I think it just, it just opens the window to your physiology in a way that we never see.
0: Yes.
1: You can put this stylet, you can put this little device on your arm, and it samples your blood sugar all day, every day for two weeks, and then you can put another one on. and You can see your blood sugar response to everything you eat and everything you do. If you didn't sleep well, you can see that your blood sugar is affected. If you're stressed, you can see your blood sugar is affected. If you eat something and your blood sugar goes really high and stays really high for a long amount of time, you get this huge area under the curve, which would indicate you know, um, some degree of insulin resistance or metabolic uh, dysfunction. And you can see a postprandial glucose dip. You can get hypoglycemia. You can see patterns of insulin resistance so clearly if you know what to look for on a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor. But I just think that that might be a real step in the right direction for humans because we won't change without some feedback that tells us to change. And most of us are waiting for a stroke, a heart attack, a seizure, or a cancer diagnosis, which will, you know, so it's crazy, right? Like a heart attack doesn't hurt until it does.
0: Just a brief interruption guys to tell you about today's show sponsor, don't fast forward. Okay. Listen, it's important. (laughs) Today's show sponsor is a company making my favorite CBD products on the planet. And as someone who has tried a lot of these products and uses CBD almost daily for relaxation, to combat inflammation, muscle soreness, all of that, I think that's saying a lot. These products have truly been one of the most game-changing supplements that I have ever used. Uh, Santa Cruz Medicinals makes CBD products sourced in Colorado and they are third-party lab-tested. It says right on their website that you can email them directly for results on any of their products, ask them any questions, they're going to be transparent with you. Their tinctures are all housed in MCT or coconut oil because we know that things like these are more bioavailable in the presence of a fat source. They have tons of products. They have some sort of more no-nonsense stuff, like CBD uh, in straight MCT oil, which has zero of that uh, kind of grassy, weed spit flavor that you get from a lot of tinctures. They also have a whole range of flavored ones that you can use in your baking, your coffee, put directly in your mouth like I do. They've got cherry, vanilla, chocolate chip, guava, peppermint, it's pretty awesome. They also have a lot of uh, skincare products. They've got this pain lotion, Uh, for sore muscles that I actually included as part of a healthy subscription box uh, project that I did last year. And I couldn't believe the feedback I got about this stuff. People with chronic pain, high-level athletes, so many people came back to me saying that they noticed a marked difference in how they felt after using it and how quickly their muscle pain subsided. It's really impressive for a topical product. So uh, I love this company. They're transparent. They're the real deal. They're always innovating and coming out with new products. And I'm happy to use their stuff and support them like they have always supported me. So if you have any questions about Santa Cruz Medicinals, uh, reach out to them on Instagram at Santa Cruz Medicinals. You can talk to me on Instagram at The Muscle Maven. Happy to answer any questions. Um, and you can head to their website, of course. It's scmedicinals.com. Shop all of their amazing products and uh, do some further research for yourself. And of course, use the code Maven for a 15% discount.
1: Yeah. And we call blood pressure the silent killer. You could have a very high blood pressure and until it creates micro in your brain or a problem somewhere in your body, you might not have a problem with this. And so I think it's important. And I love the idea of just kind of throwing back the curtain a little more for most humans and saying glucose is just one metric, but it's a very valuable metric, especially in terms of after meal glucose response, postprandial glucose response, hypoglycemia, glycemic variability. You can see all of this with just And, you know, it's so convenient for us now. You can put this little thing on your arm, you hold your cell phone up to it and you can see it in real time. And so I think that something like this could really change behavior for people. I got one for my dad. So the company that I use is NutriSense. I think they're awesome. And I got one for my dad, who's a 70 year old internist. And I just hope, you know, I want him to be around. And I hope that he'll change his behavior. He's getting there, but I'm, I'm really excited to see if it'll be enough to kind of spur that for him because as humans... We're not good at changing our behavior until we break a bone or something similar, you know, in in the same way. So I I think that if we could see that all the time, if you could see, if someone could design a band that goes on your arm that says, your inflammation is way up, you'd be like, damn it, you know, and some of us would be like, whatever, I'm partying, shut up, you know, like, I know it. There are a lot of people-
0: at least you're being informed. Like you can make bad decisions, informed bad decisions, right? Like we've all done it. We've all had our nights where we've, you know, eaten something or drank too much or whatever. We knew we were going to feel it and you make that decision anyway. But again, it's like we've lost all track of what moderation for us means and what, you know, again, sort of, um, calculated risks, you know, um, I, you're right. Like having some kind of tracking and I'm not very good with it. Like I, you know, even with like trackers, like aura rings or whoops or, you know, tracking on your phone and stuff, like I kind of do it here and there. And I think also I'm just sort of at this point, knock on wood, fortunate enough that I haven't felt like the need to do it, but I, I absolutely understand, you know, the benefit of tracking these things, whether you're healthy or not. And maybe even sometimes, especially if you're feeling healthy, cause then you set benchmarks and, and precedents and you know what it feels like and what it looks like to be doing the right things that when you don't you can see how much that affects you too right
1: exactly and um you know with the cgm it was interesting for me to try different foods i tried some fruit i tried other carbohydrates i tried honey and you can say like oh this affects me or it doesn't or look at this you know look at the area under the curve for this one versus that one this isn't as bad as i thought or this one affected me much more so and i think it's for you and me probably not going to change behavior in a huge way, but still a very valuable tool for me as I introduced more foods in my diet as part of the carbohydrate experiment that I've been playing with. But for, for 95% of the world, my goodness, because we're in the minority. Like, let's just yeah. be honest. Like if these were, if insurance paid for these for everyone or anyone that had a fasting glute, like I think insurance should just pay for a CGM at least for two to four weeks for for anyone that wants one that has an A1C above 5.2 or 5.3 or a fasting glucose that's above 100 or is obese in any way, like if insurance paid for a continuous glucose monitor and then for anyone that's obese, it would be just such interesting feedback to see if that could help motivate behavior. That's what's cool about NutriSense is you can do direct to consumer through them. So it was just a really cool thing. I think people need that, that feedback in real time to change behavior. I can't see us getting out of this sort of mire of processed food any other way.
0: Yeah, especially when the, you know, bad behaviors that we're doing taste so good and feel so good in the moment. I mean, there's a reason we're all doing it even when it makes us feel like shit later is because at the time it feels really good and it's comforting and maybe it's, we're using it to, you know, comfort us for a variety of other reasons. And it's like a band-aid that, you know, is ultimately making things worse. But, um, one of the questions I had for you, because I know you're talking a lot about um, like vegetable oils, and I just I recently spoke with Kate Shanahan, who is of course a super smart, awesome human being, and she really you know talks about the dangers of, of vegetable oils more so than sugar. I mean, I still feel like sugar is a problem for a lot of people, but it's more the poison is the dose kind of situation for for in most situations, as opposed to vegetable oils being kind of across the board like real bad. Um, What do you think, if you could like puff make some some ingredient that we eat a lot just go away, like not exist on the planet anymore, would it be vegetable oils or something else?
1: It would definitely be vegetable oils. And I think about it pretty similarly to Kate, but I'll put a little different spin on it. So I've been talking about this a lot recently, and I talk about it a little bit in the book, it it gets, um, linoleic acid is this 18 carbon omega-6 fatty acid that is present in most vegetable oils. So what we're talking about here is corn, canola, soybean, safflower, sunflower, peanut, cottonseed. These are in so much. And if you go to a restaurant, they're in foods, they're cooking foods in this. French fries are cooked in this. All processed food has these oils. Um, Evolutionarily, 2 million years ago, we probably only had 2% polyunsaturated fatty acids in our diet. And now we have 10 to 15% polyunsaturated fatty acids in our diet. And even more specifically, we probably, most mainstream Americans eating at airports or malls have 10 to 15% of omega-6 linoleic acid in their diet. Now, human biology is complex. We make fatty acids in our body, but we don't make polyunsaturated fatty acids. And this is a really interesting point. Mainstream media would vilify saturated fats, but we make saturated fats in our body. Our body makes palmitic acid. Our body makes these saturated fats. And then we convert them into monounsaturated fats with an enzyme called steroid-CoA desaturase-1, SCD1, and you know we, but we make saturated fat, and then in our, our fat cells are about half saturated and half monounsaturated, and with a very small amount of polyunsaturated, unless we're eating a lot of polyunsaturated. And herein lies the problem. We will store that polyunsaturated fat that we are eating and can change the composition of our fat cells in a negative way. And so this sort of metabolic theory of insulin resistance goes like this. Well, here's here's the juxtaposed theories. There are a lot of people in the space that say that sugar or carbohydrates cause insulin resistance. But if you really look at the biochemistry and the research, they don't. They worsen it once it's already gotten started, but you can overfeed someone with bagels. And if you just give them bagels, they don't get insulin resistant and they don't really gain weight unless you absolutely stuff them full of bagels. Right? But If you add vegetable oil to that equation, boom, they will get insulin resistant and gain weight immediately. And so I think that there is both clinical and and biochemical evidence that carbohydrates add fuel to the fire in the setting of insulin resistance, but that there is a metabolic derangement happening at a deeper level that appears to be primarily driven by excess polyunsaturated fatty acids in the human diet. And that is the root cause. I don't know if you like Rage Against the Machine, Um, they have a song, Know Your Enemy. And so I think this is so important because it's very hard for us as humans to do six things, right? Mm -hmm. So if you had to do one thing, know your enemy. And I think that the, like, just like we were saying, there's been this Pandora's box of processed food and everyone agrees that that is behind chronic disease epidemic. But the unfortunate thing is that some of us are pointing to it and going processed carbohydrates. and other ones are going sugar. And then other people are going vegetable oil, so it's probably one of those three things, and it could be all three. But the way that I see it biochemically is that public enemy number one is vegetable oil, and I want to go, I'll go into more detail there because it goes deeper. But if you had to eliminate one of those three, it would be vegetable oil because you can, if you eliminate vegetable oil, like if you if I overfeed someone on bagels, they won't get insulin resistant. It really is much more biochemically difficult to achieve. But if I overfeed someone on polyunsaturated fatty acids, they will become insulin resistant immediately, immediately. And so just like processed foods have exploded in our diet, all those processed foods are full of vegetable oil. And these are polyunsaturated vegetable oils. So if you got rid of that, I mean, I think you would solve the problem. And herein lies the bugaboo for us as humans. They're in everything. Yeah. You go to restaurants, they're everywhere. They're cheap. And furthermore, all a lot of our animals are fed corn and soy. And the problem with that, especially in chicken and pork, is that when you feed chicken and pork corn and soy, they get full of vegetable oil, quote unquote. So if you feed a chicken corn and soy, which is not a chicken's species-appropriate diet, the fat from that chicken is going to get enriched in linoleic acid. You could take an ancestral chicken, which I don't even know what ancestral chicken looks like, Um, but you could take an ancestral chicken or a better example would be an ancestral pig and look at the fatty acids and say, what's the content of their fat that's linoleic acid? It's about four, 5%. A pig that's grown on a farm, that's the bacon that most of us eat that are fed corn and soy, 12, 13, 14% linoleic acid in their fat. May not sound like a, a lot, But that critical difference, I mean, that's a three to four times multiplier. That is really probably the switch that is determining metabolic dysfunction or metabolic health in humans. And so avoiding these oils, both by avoiding animals that are fed corn and soy, which makes this much more difficult because now we have to be careful what chicken and pork we are eating. And I'll talk about red meat ruminants in a second. And also avoiding them in our food. I think that's the single biggest lever that we can pull if we have to pull one. And then I'll talk about the carbohydrates piece here as well. So I I think we've seen each other at KetoCon and I think low-carb diets are incredibly valuable for humans because when you become insulin resistant, carbohydrates fuel the fire. And I probably won't go any deeper than that biochemically other than say that. So you can remove carbohydrates in a state of insulin resistance and you will lower your insulin. Now, that may not fix the underlying problem if you don't remove the vegetable oils. Yeah. So you can do a ketogenic diet with soybean oil and still remain very problematically metabolically broken. And I think this is the stumbling block for a lot of people on ketogenic diets is they will do keto, they'll go low carb which can be very helpful by lowering insulin, but then anytime they add carbohydrates back they gain weight immediately, right? And so when I add carbohydrates to my diet, I don't gain weight. <laughs> So if you add carbs and gain weight, it's like you haven't fixed the underlying metabolic problem. And as you and I know, the inclusion of some carbohydrates in the diet from time to time can be beneficial. gives people variety. There are different foods that have carbohydrates that can be beneficial. And to do a long-term low-carbohydrate diet can be challenging for both men and women from a hormonal perspective and from an electrolyte perspective. Mm -hmm. Personally, I've begun to include honey in my diet from time to time, And that was one of the things that was interesting to watch with the CGM. And it's really made a difference in terms of electrolyte maintenance. It's just so hard for a human to maintain their electrolytes with very, very low insulin for long amounts of time. For short amounts of time, it works great to have an insulin of two or one, you know. But long term, I just think it's very difficult. And cycling in carbohydrates makes a big difference. A lot of women talk about sometimes getting hormonal irregularities with long term keto. And I think that it's individual. Some people do just fine and other people have problems with it. But again, I think that there is this probably evolutionary consistency in having some carbohydrates from time to time to give it that balance again. So carbohydrates can be beneficial, but if we don't fix the underlying insulin resistance, then the addition of those carbohydrates kind of fuel this fire. But that that underlying insulin resistance is a lipid-based mechanism that hinges on these polyunsaturated fatty acids.
0: Do you do raw honey? I do. Okay. Yeah. It's more delicious. Um, okay. Okay. But wait, I have a question before we go any further. Cause you're saying a lot of useful things and I don't want to like go past it and then forget what I wanted to ask you. So first of all, I've been following along with this very bad news about chicken and pigs, which makes <laughs> me sad because I really like eating both of those animals. Um, but I think one of the things that's really good to just touch on again, and like with layman's words here for the people that are listening, because I know a lot of people that follow you and that are like, we're asking me questions to ask you for this podcast and stuff. There are people who have already dabbled with carnivore or, you know, meat-based paleo and, and really low carb diets and things like that. And I think there is still this very like prevailing feeling in this community that it's like, Carbs are okay in moderation. You have to do personalized nutrition and figure out where and when it works. But generally, it's the carbs that are the problem. And if you're eating relatively good quality meat and you just kind of stick with that, that's a pretty simple way forward. It's gonna work for most people. But I think what you're kind of telling me now, which is a bit of a bummer, but I get it, (laughs) is that it's still, the, the meat quality matters a lot. And that you could potentially, for a lot of metabolically healthy people, eat like, for example, again, a paleo diet of very, very high quality sourced, um, both protein and, and vegetables and be better off than a low quality carnivore diet, right? Where you're eating a lot of protein that's coming from less than ideal sources.
1: Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I mean, there's some caveats to throw in there, but yes, I agree with that. And I think that, like I said, you know, this is where discussion and sharing of ideas is so important. And there's a lot of Dogmatism and everything. And again, we're back to the tribal thing, right? When I started saying this, people were like, you're changing your perspective. And it's like, actually, no. If you read my book, I'm I'm pretty clear that carbohydrates are not the problem, that it's the combination of carbohydrates and fat that causes metabolic problems for people. And more specifically, it's the combination of carbohydrates and polyunsaturated vegetable oil fat that causes problems for people. So it's you can you can hack the system a little bit by eliminating carbs. And if that works for people, that's great. But wouldn't it be better to eliminate carbs and eliminate the actual root cause of the symptom? And if people root cause of the problem metabolically, if people want to be low carb forever, that's great. But as you know, there's a real difference between low carb and zero carb, yeah. you know, and functionally. Yeah. And I know a lot of people who are low carb who will eat an avocado or berries. And I mean, like, Even eating honey on most days, I would be considered low carb because less than 25% of my calories are from carbohydrates. There's a lot of nuance here that gets lost and the precision in the way we're speaking is important. Mainstream nutritional recommendations are 55% of the calories from carbohydrates. That's a massive amount of carbohydrates. That's certainly not what I'm advocating for. And I can't imagine how anyone would get enough micronutrients in their diet by eating 55% of your calories from carbohydrates. So I'm absolutely, unequivocally a fan of low-carbohydrate diets to get enough protein and the micronutrients that come with those nutrient-rich animal foods. That's critical. But within that, there's all these nuances, right? There's a real difference between 75 grams of carbs a day and zero grams of carbs a day. And if you watch the Continuous Glucose Monitor podcast I did, it's very clear that if you eliminate carbohydrates completely for years and years and years, most people will see a, 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 a gradual rise, a progressive and gradual rise in their fasting glucose as the tissues of the body become more and more physiologically insulin resistant. And I just don't think that that's a good thing. Um, that's just having a fasting glucose of 120 and a baseline glucose of 120 all day. I showed that example of a CGM in the podcast. I don't think that's a good thing for humans. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's a really um, it's a tenuous position to be in. A, And I'm not sure we want to be there. So, you know, even adding some carbohydrates occasionally will remind the muscle to do glucose metabolism to remain metabolically flexible and change things in a positive way in that sense. So, yes, I think that, you know, you can eliminate carbs, but know what the problem is. And I'm not advocating for a high carb diet, I'm not saying everybody needs carbohydrates, but. If you are not thriving on keto, if you are having electrolyte abnormalities, which a lot of people have, if you are having fertility issues or menstrual irregularities as a woman, realize that like it's okay to eat carbs from time to time, and if you're not okay with that, then you're not fixing the underlying thing, and as you're saying, it gets to be more nuanced, but it's all kind of the same idea, like why are we eating animals that are not eating a species appropriate diet yeah and and the most divergent animals from their species-appropriate diet are chicken and pigs because they're monogastric animals eating very high, relatively speaking, linoleic acid containing corn and soy. Now, if you can get chickens that are not fed corn and soy that are fed lower fat, lower linoleic acid grains, or chickens that are mostly eating bugs and grubs, that's great. The tricky thing is gonna be getting pork. Like, you really are gonna have to be careful where you get your pork from, but how many people in these communities freaking love their bacon. And what I'm telling you is your bacon could be causing your insulin resistance. Your bacon could be the reason that you're stuck on a low carb diet and you can't get off of it. In the short term, we know that low carbohydrate diets work because you're just removing the insulin signal. But I see it as like a stopgap. Like do that, cut your carbohydrates. And then as you're doing that, get rid of these vegetable oils, clean up the meats you're eating and give it time. And then you should soon, and we don't really know that time frame. you know, how long does it take to get these polyunsaturated fatty acids out of the body, right? Is it six months? Is it eight months? Is it a year? Is it three months? How long does it take for someone who is just, who is just full of linoleic acid to become metabolically healthy again, that's what's tricky. So,
0: and it's stored in their in your fat cells too, right? Like it is, listen, yeah. So. That's the other problem. It seems. I mean, like what you're saying is there's a, there's stages to this. There's levels to it, and I think like now might be a good time to take your shirt off because you just gave people really bummer news about bacon. <laughs> <laughs> really sad. But it's funny because I I get a lot of women coming to me, a lot of keto women. Who again, it's there's there's nuance, and people have to be okay with changing and adjusting as their journey goes on. Because like a lot of people talk about folks who go into a vegetarian diet and feel really good for the first three weeks because they were coming from a standard American diet. And if they switch and start eating vegetables, they probably will start feeling better for a little while until they don't. And the same thing goes with keto for women who are overweight and eating all processed carbs and then they switch to this higher fat thing and they feel great. And so they're like, I'm never eating a carb again in my life. And I have women coming to me who feel guilty about putting Brussels sprouts next to their steak, or putting two, you know, strawberries in their protein shake, and like that's where we're we're getting to the this dogma, this fear-based kind of approach to things that that I don't think is helpful. But this leads me to another uh, thing that I wanted to talk about because I want to make sure I get some questions from people that sent them in before you have to go. Uh, and it's this idea of like cycling um carnivore a carnivore approach the same way people do like keto cycling or even carb cycling for people and i know that you can't give out prescriptions because we're all different we're coming from different places but generally speaking like a metabolically healthy person who tends to eat a more sort of animal protein forward diet that is either looking to maybe i don't know lose some fat or they're they're playing with fasting or they're i don't know just trying to level up their health They don't want to get rid of carbs and stuff for their entire life because life is short and we want to eat the honey and whatever. Um, But they want to kind of like cycle it. Um, And this is something that I've personally done where if I do like a a satiety sort of reset because I went on vacation and made some mistakes and I want to come back and sort myself out, I'll do like a carnivore reset instead of keto. Um, And I won't generally be 100% carnivore for more than like five days to a week. And I usually find that that really helps... Set, reset my hunger signals and just how I feel and my digestion and all of these things. Is that something that you, again, generally speaking, recommend? And how does that usually look for people?
1: I think it's a great idea. I mean, in the book, in the carnivore code, I talk about the clean carnivore reset. People want to use it as a, as a cleanse. I hate that word or a reset. I think it's totally reasonable to do that as a little short experiment. I think it's totally fine. The thing I'll say is that um, yeah, it depends on the type of things that you've gotten into that have kind of caused that thing to get off kilter. You know, for instance, when you go on vacation and you have some, some stuff, like what is it that you had on vacation that you felt like threw you off balance?
0: Uh, I guess for me, it's usually booze because I'm not really much of a drinker. So uh-huh. like I, I can handle like carbs and sugar pretty good in like short bursts. But uh-huh. when I drink like, you know, alcohol, it's not good.
1: Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I think in that case, resetting the satiety signals with a low carb diet is beneficial. I think that we, and this is another, this this is kind of one of Mark Sisson's, I think, great concepts that, that being low carb frequently and intermittently can really reset these satiety signals. And we can even do this on a daily basis, which is basically the point of intermittent fasting. You know, So when I eat breakfast, I eat it in the morning and then I'll eat dinner like after this podcast, it's 2.20 here in the afternoon. I'm going to eat dinner after this podcast and I won't eat again for the rest of the day. So for me, I feel like I can eat carbohydrates most days now in the form of raw organic honey, which I would even consider to be a carnivore carbohydrate. Um, and, and, And my satiety signals don't really get that messed up because I have a long fasting window every day. So there are lots of ways to do this, but I think some amount of time and I've said this before on other podcasts, I do think that frequently we should allow our liver to use up all of the glycogen in it, which is when we start producing ketones, whether we do that on a daily basis or um, whether we do that every week for a few days or whether you do that for five days after doing alcohol. I had this conversation with Chris Masterjohn on a podcast I did with him and you know he eats a lot of carbohydrates and he admitted that he'll often wake up in the morning with trace ketones. And at that point, you can pretty much say like, hey, if you have trace ketones or 0.2 or 0.3 millimolar, you're not in ketosis, quote unquote, because it's 0.5. But if you're making ketones, your liver has pretty much blown through the glycogen. And that's probably a good thing. You've kind of had this reset and you know, that's good. You've kind of reset things, satiety mechanisms, you're having some ketones. That's the benefit of intermittent fasting. So you can eat carbohydrates every day in a fat, in like a time-restricted feeding window and still get this kind of metabolic reset every day. The problem for most of us is we're going to eat breakfast, honey, or not necessarily honey, but coffee. You know, we're going to put creamer in the coffee. We're going to eat from 6am to 8pm at night you're never going to reset overnight. You're not going to wake up with ketones. You're never going to deplete your glycogen, which is why I think intermittent fasting is so valuable for people occasionally, every day, whatever. Or if you really just can't ever do that, doing some amount of time, keto or low carb or carnivore can really give you sort of that metabolic reset with that stuff too. So yeah, I think there's all tools. Like you said in the beginning, it's just information that people can use to their benefit, however it fits their life. But personally- I feel better doing intermittent fasting basically every day.
0: Yeah. And I think, again, like what we said at the top of the call is just sort of like being willing to hear new information and be open-minded and try things for yourself. Because just because it works for you doesn't mean it works for me. Just because it worked for that buff guy on the internet doesn't mean it works for me. And fasting is one of the things that I actually started implementing really only um, during quarantine because I you know, was like being stuck in the house at the beginning when we were really stuck in the house. I was like, this could go many different ways for me. Like I could just like start eating my feelings and I'm not going to the gym anymore. And this is miserable. And I have sleep issues. And I could just like go totally off the rails if I let myself. And so I immediately like kind of made a plan to, to do this the right way. And I knew that my movement was was going way down. I knew that my workouts, the intensity was going to go way down. I knew that my requirement for food was going to go down. And I started adjusting accordingly. And I was never, I, I could do a 24 hour fast pretty easily because I, I, I've done the work to become metabolically flexible, but I just I didn't usually enjoy it because I just love to eat so much. And during this process, I I started doing kind of like daily, I'm sort of doing the opposite of you where I'm eating like breakfast at lunch and I'm having an early dinner and I'm trying to keep it to like six or seven hours a day which is something I normally was not really a fan of. And it's worked so seamlessly and so well for me um, during this period and has improved my sleep. And it helped like with body composition during this time when I'm like literally not lifting weights anymore. Um, And it was something that, again, it was like always a tool in my back pocket that I decided to use when I needed to as a means to a specific goal. And it's been really beneficial for me. Um, but I want to talk about, because I know we're getting close to, you've, you've got to jump off, and we we can't end this conversation without talking about organ meats a little bit. Let's talk about it. Because I love them, and you love them. And I think one of the things that is sort of underrepresented in our world in this sort of animal protein carnivore you know conversation is you look at some of the big names in carnivore, and you mostly just see big plates of steak all day, every day, maybe some in and out burgers. Like it's very, it's very uniformly, here's a pile of red meat and that's it. It's beef, right? And I've talked about this before, that I think it's, we're doing a disservice because if you want to be strict carnivore, you, there's still so many options for you. There's so much variety and there's so much that makes it more pleasurable and sustainable um, and healthy to try to have a little bit more variety in your diet, and you did speak earlier about you know there's there's the downside to if you're not getting quality animal products, you could be doing more harm than you think, right? If you're getting like really low quality poultry or, or pork or whatever, but I feel like there's not enough conversation around nose to tail and eating the really nutrient dense parts of the animal, and just knowing that you can eat seafood and shellfish and things like that. It's not, it doesn't have to just be a steak all day, every day, because that gets boring. I'm sorry. Steak's delicious, but that's boring. Right. I I I don't get bored of it. Maybe
1: I think I'm cut from a different cloth. I love it. That's
0: that's like (laughs) the the texture fatigue too. Like I want to have like, I don't know, like pork rinds. Like I want to have something crunchy. I want to have something that's like, like ah, I get bored.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's true. I guess because I'm eating organ meats, I'm getting different textures and I'm doing a lot of bone broths if people want to see what i'm eating you can go to my website which is carnivoremd.com there's a video what i eat in a day it's a lot of organ meats Good. and even just nutritionally if we look at what we know humans need to make our biochemical engines run efficiently and smoothly we need vitamins and minerals that are found in the organ meats it, it's just not present in muscle meat i just this is a conversation that isn't really even a question for me anymore like you just can't You can't suspend the human need for folate or riboflavin or copper or on and on and on. And then, you know, the more I've researched organ meats because I'm actually developing a company now. So when this podcast comes out, Heart and Soil will be launched, which is super exciting for me. It's my supplement company. I wanted to make organ meats in these desiccated organ capsules in the best way that we could from grass-fed, grass-finished regenerative farms for people that can't eat the real organs. So people can check it out heartandsoilsupplements.com so this is really my passion is that as i've been researching these more to share information with people on that website and about these organs there are peptides in organs there are growth factors in organs that are not present in muscle meat and and these are crazy i mean you can look at for instance the stomach of an animal bpc 157 is found in the gastric juices of an animal so this is a peptide that you know, other biohackers talk about and people will inject it, but you can get this in stomach and intestines. And then there's, people are now thinking about thymus and alpha one, TA1 with coronavirus. And so, well, we, you get that in eating thymus. And then there are all these peptides in heart. There are peptides in testicles. There are peptides in ovaries. So we, we, this is a whole nother realm of the benefits of organ meats that we have never even thought about as humans. Mm. What about peptides? What about small proteinaceous molecules that are beneficial for us at a signaling level that are not even present in all the muscle meat? There's two peptides or three peptides in spleen, splenin, tuftsin, splenopentin, that have been found to be very beneficial for animals and animal models. There are peptides in liver. There's like something in liver. They've taken these liver extracts, they give them to mice and the mice just like run around. Turn into they,
0: super mice. They turn into yeah. super
1: mice. You give yeah. mice liver, they turn into super mice. And it's this yeah. this like extractable peptide. There's all these peptides. It's called leap two in liver. So there's all these peptides. And that's just on top of the nutrients that we know we need in these organs, whether it's vitamin A in a soluble form or choline or carnitine, or like I said, riboflavin folate. They're just not present in enough quantities in muscle meat alone. Muscle meat's incredibly valuable, but You and I are in a tribe. We, you know, we're grateful and thankful to have a water buffalo or um, a buffalo or uh, whatever animal we're going to eat. We're not just going to eat the meat. We're going to eat the organs first. And we know that animals do this for a lot of reasons. So I think that the best way to get it is to eat the real organ meats. I know you're coming out with a cookbook that has like the new, the real organ meats. And if you can't do that, the desiccated organ supplements are a great option, but get the organ meats in your diet. It's just, it's life-changing for people.
0: All right, so we're covering all the bases because for the adventurous people who want to eat it, I got a cookbook for you. love it. And if you just can't stomach it, then you do the supplements. I like that. And I mean, I would rather eat, the organs to get that, that, those peptides, BPC-157 that everyone's talking about. I know there are probably some people who would rather just inject themselves every day than eat an organ, but we'll, you know, we gotta like warm people up to it, I suppose. But what, uh, what's your favorite, like when you're making organ meats, what do you, what do you prepare? What do you cook the most?
1: I mean, so I'm excited to see your cookbook because I eat a lot of them raw. Um, I'm just kind of a, I told you I'm Mowgli. I'm just a, edit I'm Tarzan out here. I'll just eat raw liver, you know, raw I spleen, do. raw pancreas, raw thymus. You know, I, I want to do some sweetbreads soon and cook them, but. So good. I'll, yeah, so good. I'll put some, uh, I'll, sometimes I'll put them in bone broth. If I'm you know making bone broth, I'll put some extra organ meats in there and just kind of cook them in the bone broth. Not super exciting, but the other thing that I'll eat is bones. So if you take like a rib bone, I don't know if you tried this, but you can take a rib bone. If you cook it in bone broth, you can actually eat the rib bone. It's super good. It's got the red marrow in the middle. And then you're getting bones, which is another source of calcium and silica and other nutrients, boron, manganese, that we're not getting. So it's really nose to tail. This is really how our ancestors did it. Mm-hmm. A lot of us are not willing to do this, which is where the desiccated organs come in. But if you're, if you're creative and you're excited about it, I think this is what's so cool. Now, I know you live part of your year in New York, Apparently, there's lots of restaurants in New York. This is like the hot new thing. Mm-hmm. They're serving organ meats because they have unique flavor. They're certainly nutritionally valuable. And the chefs are always trying to do something new. So I think Brodo is doing organ meats, they do broth and stuff. I've never been there, but it's just super exciting to see, you know, really talented chefs starting to use these foods um, as well. Not
0: to mention the money that you can make, because if you can buy some of these ingredients for a sense and then right. turn it around and make it this fancy entree, actually, um, have you been to Hearth in New York?
1: No, I haven't been so, to New York in years.
0: Okay. So you got to come, well, who knows when it's going to be sort of right. that we remember it, but um, you got to check out Hearth. Uh Marco Canora is the chef there, and he's also the founder of Brodo, and he um, is supporting the cookbook as well, because we connected over our love of uh, organ meats and chatted about Very it. Cool. I actually, I took our, our mutual friend, Gabrielle, actually for my birthday in January, we went to um, an Asian restaurant that was just all... Just parts, like everything, like sweetbreads and raw yes. this and that. Yeah, every, like there was no normal cuts of meat there. And she, of course, was game and enjoyed it. And she ended up writing the foreword to my book because you know I'm more the organ meat person. She's more of just like the animal protein person. But coming together and showing that this is and this is kind of I feel like a theme of this entire conversation is that. It's, it's not so much about dogma as it is about being willing to learn and adjust your lifestyle or your plans accordingly. And I think that one of the things that I'm really trying to get across with this book is not that everyone has to eat brains every day, it's that if you're willing to try new things and have positive experiences, that can translate to so many other places in your life. Like, there are so many people who think, it's so arbitrary to look at a hunk of, of beef and think this is normal and okay and not gross at all, and then a slightly different hunk of beef from a different part of it and say, that's extreme and disgusting and vile and why would you ever do it? It's so bizarre. And so I think looking at reframing this stuff, instead of thinking it's scary and weird, thinking it's exciting and different, And if you have this positive experience and you enjoy it and you get better health and you have fun in the kitchen and all of this stuff, it can open you up to new experiences in other parts of your life. And that's what we should all be striving for. Not closing ourselves off, but opening ourselves up. Right?
1: I couldn't agree more. I think life is about learning. I mean, what's cooler than learning in life and then sharing that with other people. So yeah, new experiences, learning, and that's what it's about. I mean, we have, there are, I remember learning this when I was in college, you know, there are these sort of dopaminergic pathways in the brain, the, the nucleus accumbens, and 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 these are the reward pathways. And they're basically food, sex, and learning are the things that, that turn on our reward pathways. And when I first learned that, I was like, I got food and sex, but like, why is learning? And of course, it makes sense. Like, to survive in an environment, you have to be rewarded for learning things, whether it's the source of Uh, where you can fish, or where you can hunt, or how to navigate a ridge, or, you know, you're learning how to make a tool, or, you know, but humans are programmed to learn. And I think that, um, that we shouldn't forget that, you know, as much as we all like, you know, healthy sexuality, and we like food, learning is going to trigger these same sort of Good feelings in humans, and and it's also just going to enrich us and our communities, too.
0: Mm -hmm. And what better way to combine them all than to learn about sex and food? And then you're getting (laughs) triple whammy, it's all good, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. We talk about all of it on the podcast today.
0: There you go. Yep, I love it. And you kept your shirt on the whole time disappointment all around. (sighs) Okay, (laughs) all right, (laughs) you can see me
1: me with my shirt on on my Instagram if they want.
0: That's true, that's true. You do do that a lot for us, okay. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time. It was awesome catching up with you. I know you're a busy man. I'm going to get you uh, my cookbook as soon as I can. It's going to be actually, I think, available for pre-order at some point early in the summer, but I'll get you a copy so you can take a look and try some recipes. And uh, hopefully we'll do this, you know, again in person sometime soon. Start planning this Vegans versus Carnivore uh, Ultimate Fighter. And, I love uh, it.
1: it <laughs> I love it. So, yeah, absolutely. People can find my book. Can I tell them about that? Yeah, yeah, do book it. book is... The book is The Carnivore Code. You can find it at thecarnivorecodebook.com. Hopefully this podcast will release the first week of August when it's the book is actually actually releasing. It's releasing August 4th, so you can either pre-order or get the book. But if you're interested in these things and you want to know my ideas about why animal-based diets are really the best diet for humans, the full spectrum of plant toxicity, how to do a carnivore diet, debunk all these myths, it's all in the book. I really think that it, it has the potential to open up a lot of eyes and I'm super excited about it. So I hope you guys will all check it out and tell your friends, tell your grandmas about it. And then my website is carnivoremd.com. You can find all my stuff there.
0: All right, we're on it. Telling all our grandmas. Thanks Paul. Tell your grandmas. <laughs> okay, thank you everybody for listening. If you haven't checked out Paul's book, The Carnivore Code, make sure you do that. Uh, and he has also, uh, launched his own line of nose to tail organ supplements, which as you know, I'm very into it's called heart and soil supplements. Um, I'm going to check those out soon. It's brand new. Um, but I'm going to check it out. He's going to send me some stuff to try and I'll let you know what I think. Um, but in the meantime, thank you again to my show sponsor. Santa Cruz Medicinals for just being so on top of product development and quality control. They have the best quality, highest dose CBD products out there. Everything you can imagine from sleep caps to flavored CBD tinctures to uh topical pain cream they have cbd infused coconut oil uh whipped tallow skincare. just amazing amazing stuff i'm obsessed with their products and if you like to nerd out on things like sourcing and product quality which you should These guys are on top of that too, super responsive to your questions. If you want to send them an email or a DM on Instagram, I actually have a full interview with the founder, Brendan, on my IGTV on Instagram at The Muscle Maven. So you can go check that out and learn a bit more about the company and their background and how they do things. And you can also head to scmedicinals.com, use the code MUSCLEMAVEN15 for a discount. And that's it. As always, hit me up. I mean it. If you have questions, suggestions, comments, whatever you want to chat about, talk to me on social. I'm always probably too much on Instagram. Uh, So you can talk to me there or you can send me an email at ashleyvanhouten at gmail.com. That's in the show notes. You can make sure it's spelled properly and let's chat. All right. I appreciate you. Thank you for spending your time with me. And until next time, have a great week, everybody.